0: Hello to all and welcome to the Milt Rosenberg podcast, and it is not a matter of total accident that the voice you hear is that of Milton Rosenberg, and instantly you will hear the voice of another old friend, indeed a neighbor of mine, I speak geographically, namely Alan Dershowitz uh, of, of course, Harvard Law School, he's got a new book, we'll talk about it almost instantly, but would you explain why I call you a, a geographic neighbor?
1: Well, I'm trying to figure that out. Did you grow up in Brooklyn?
0: Well, in Bensonhurst. We've been over this before. Oh,
1: of course. Yeah, I was just uh, back in Borough Park recently. Yeah,
0: you were in Borough, Borough Park, Park and Bensonhurst. Are Bensonhurst? Are ad- yeah. Are adjacent, yeah.
1: Yeah, but except you lost your accent. Uh, I still have mine a little bit. When well, when I go back to Brooklyn, my Brooklynese comes out a little bit. Hey. No,
0: nah, I gave that up a long time ago. I don't talk like
1: that no more. Yeah, yeah, no No more, right? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Actually, Borough Park in those days, and I'm sure it's still the case in these days, it's being a neighborhood in Brooklyn, was um, next to some other area, I guess, uh, the second leading Hasidic center in maybe the world, certainly in the country.
1: I think it still is. Um, I, went, I went to a wedding in Borough Park recently, a Hasidic wedding, mm-hmm. and it was amazing. I walked through the streets, and I looked like a space alien, because although I'm you know Jewish and traditional, um, I was out of uniform, and uh, I wasn't wearing a kippah head covering, so uh, I really didn't fit in at all. Borough Park is still a very Hasidic neighborhood.
0: Yeah, and you cut your payas a long time ago.
1: <laughs> well, I had, my, I had payas until I was three. And then my my parents my parents allowed me to get a haircut when I was three. That that was the tradition.
0: I think the first time we probably talked on the radio, <laughs> and it's many years ago, uh, was one of your books about well I guess it was an uh, an autobiographical volume or a memoir or something, in which you dealt with your childhood in Borough Park in New York and. Right. Uh, And how you defined your Jewishness then and how you had come to define your Jewishness. And it was maybe in that book or maybe in another one, because I've read many of your books, you got off a wonderful line. I wonder if it still applies, because we're beginning to zero in on your current book, titled Terror Tunnels, uh, The Case for Israel's Just War Against Hamas. But going back to the line you got off in one of your books about Jews in America was, quote, They used to want to kill us, now they want to marry us.
1: That's true. Yeah, that was the Vanishing American Jew. That's that was and, a book, right? And I've written four or five books now about you know that touch on my growing up in Brooklyn. My first one was The Best Defense, early in the '80s, and then I wrote a book called Chutzpah, which was the New York Times number one bestseller. Do you remember and, that? Right, and then Vanishing American Jew, and now I have a another one just before I wrote Terra Tunnels. Called "Taking the Stand," my life in the law, which is really a legal autobiography, covering all my murder cases and my high-profile cases. But I do talk a little bit about growing up in Brooklyn there too. I can't, you know, you can get the you can get the boy out of Brooklyn, but you can't get Brooklyn out of the boy.
0: And what about that sentence I've just remembered and quoted? They used to want to mar- kill us. Now they want to marry us. Is Is that still the case, or do you sense that there is some nascent? Uh, uh, American anti-Semitism, which is getting beyond nascency, is begin beginning to bud across the uh, above the ground again.
1: Well, you know, on universities and at college campuses,
0: which is where I've spent all of my life,
1: right there is virulent anti-Zionism, yes. and it sometimes morphs over into anti-Semitism.
0: Exactly so.
1: Uh, Jews are too pushy. They control the media. They control Wall Street. So you hear some of that. But on
0: And you hear, it from, so, you hear it from leftist professors.
1: Leftist professors, and particularly uh, leftist professors who don't even say it outside the classroom. They say it in the classroom. So they do. And they preach against Israel from the sacred lectern of the university, and they grade students down for taking uh, different views than theirs on the Middle East uh, conflict. And that's what's, you know, a teacher has the right to express him or herself outside the classroom. But when you get teachers using the lectern of the classroom and the grading and recommending process, it's like sexual harassment. I mean, I don't see that it's very different when a male professor says to a woman unless you sleep with me i will not recommend you or give you a low grade unless you and denounce
0: israel i will give you a low grade
1: that's right uh-huh. i mean it's kind of political harassment but it has the same implication and uh, it shouldn't be it shouldn't be tolerated by students or by the administration why and, and how d-
0: why and how did the american left particularly the academically based american left turn so rapidly anti-israeli
1: Well, first of all, because the Communist Party turned against Israel and many on the hard left. You know, there there, there are no communists left in the world except on American academic campuses.
0: I often say that myself.
1: Right, and so the hard, hard left made it a litmus test. Then Daniel Berrigan, one of the most despicable characters in American history. Father, Fa-
0: Father Berrigan. Left,
1: right. Uh, uh, called, uh, this was before the occupation, before anything, called Israel a criminal community, mm. and, co- and called the Jews who support Israel criminals, war criminals, essentially. And he turned the hard left against, against Israel. And it's an unthinking opposition. It's not constructive criticism it's demonization, delegitimation, calling for boycott, divestment, and sanctions regarding Israel as is the worst human rights offender in the world, comparing it to Nazi Germany. There's no nuanced discussion on university campuses. Well, now, you know, Alan,
0: I, I cannot fully agree that it was just Father Daniel Berrigan who uh, no. is accountable yeah. for all of this. It seems to me that uh, standard Western leftism inevitably uh, uh, Identifies with suppressed and repressed and injured peoples. And they they have so defined the Palestinians and more broadly, they've defined the Arabs generally as in that category.
1: I wish you were right. Um, And that's what they say, but it's not true. You can't get a demonstration on university campuses today for the Kurds. You can't get one for the Tibetans. It's only the Palestinians. It's only the Palestinians that's yeah. the only group, and it's the pal- and it's Hamas. Uh, you get a woman like Judith Butler, a Jewish gay, radical leftist uh, from California, who says that uh, Hamas is a progressive organization. These are the same people who said that Stalin was a progressive uh, when, when he made his deal with Nazi Germany. Um,
0: would you, would, you, would Judith Butler be stoned in Gaza, or would you have to go to Riyadh to be stoned?
1: No, well, she—if she certainly went to Gaza, she'd be stoned. If she went to uh, Iran, she'd be hanged. Uh, and I've challenged ha, hang her for, to do ha,
0: that. Hang for what? For what particular offense? For being gay. For being gay, exactly.
1: Oh yeah. Mm. If, if she tried to go there with her partner, um, she wouldn't leave alive. Uh, and yet, she calls Hamas a progressive. Organization. This is a group that hates Christians, uh, that hates, uh, of course, Jews and Americans, and uh, has in its charter that you know Jews caused the French Revolution and the First World War and the Second World War and the drug trade. Uh, it's an overtly anti-Semitic oh, wait a minute and yet had a Jewish woman s- s- supports them as progressive.
0: Uh, causing the French Revolution wasn't all bad, was it?
1: <laughs> you know uh every and and then there's this new concept called pinkwashing um, um uh, act, some of the leaders of the gay community who are very very early anti-israel and you wonder why uh say that the only reason israel is the best country in the war, in, in the middle east for gays and lesbians is because they use that to pinkwash how they're dealing with the palestinians so anything israel does positive is turned negative by these uh, extremist, radical leftists. Um, And uh, it's had a big impact on university campuses because, you know, kids don't want to be unpopular with their teachers. And so you get the divestment boycott campaign directed against Israel, not against the Palestinians, who have rejected peace offers in 1938, 1948, 1967, 1993, 2001, and 2008. But they're never criticized for that. It's because Israel hasn't now made peace that the divestment boycott sanction campaign. Well, now you, you know
0: at, at my university, uh, the University of Chicago, where I've been for a very, very long time, and where I've recently uh, been emeritized as well, as you have just been emeritized at Harvard Law School, uh, the some of the students, Jewish students to be sure, maybe there were one or two who were not Jewish, have gone to the administration complaining about some of their. Social science professors and humanities professors are uh, being too anti Israel and using the classroom as a propaganda uh, mm-hmm. basis, so to speak. Well,
1: we know that John Mearsheimer uh, has crossed well, the line from anti Zionism to anti Semitism. He recently blurbed a book by an Israeli Jew named Gilad Atzmon, who lives in England, and who said that he believes that Jews may well have used Christian blood to bake matzahs. He thinks that may be true, but the Holocaust probably isn't true. And John Mearsheimer blurbed that book. And a professor of jurisprudence at the Harvard Law School, at the the, uh, University of Chicago Law School, whose name I'm not remembering now, but he knows who he is, um, um, supported uh, Mearsheimer in, in blurbing that book. So, Chicago, which has generally been an apolitical campus for the most part it's not been essentially involved in any of these protests, now has a bunch of professors who are hard left and anti israel and I understand why why students are beginning to complain about that
0: well i don't know that chicago's been uh, so Central or so non-political. Remember, one other leading professor of law, just as you are a leading professor of law, is Bernadine Dorn, the wife of Bill Ayers, and her degree is from the University of Chicago Law School.
1: Yeah, well, you know Ayers and and, and uh, Dorn. Um, just escape prison by the skin of their teeth. I
0: mean, well, Dorn served, Dorn served half a right. year or something.
1: they, they deserved much, much more imprisonment, uh, because what they were doing was not just advocacy. They were planning, uh, violent actions and engaging in violent actions. And the idea that they are rewarded with professorships and access to the future president to me is, has always been, uh, has always been shocking. Uh, if anybody had been in the Klan, which was the equivalent of the hard hard left that was blowing up you know, buildings in academia, if anybody had been in the client, can you imagine them getting a position, an academic position, just because they had either served their term or didn't serve a term and apologized? It would never happen. Uh, there is a very, very sharp distinction between how we treat people on the right and how we treat people on the left, exactly the opposite from what was in the 1940s and 50s, where if you were a former member of the American Fascist Party... You could get a job teaching in a college but if you had been a communist or even a fellow traveler you couldn't get a job. Then in the 70s, and 80s it switched completely. If you were an extreme right winger you couldn't get a job, but no matter how far left you were, you could get a job. In fact, that was probably an advantage. in getting a job, you get somebody like Norman Finkelstein who is completely unqualified to be a professor becomes appointed to uh, DePaul University. He was ultimately fired, but it was a close question for him and he had no qualifications except that he was hard-left, and virulently anti-Israel. That was his only qualification.
0: Now, you know, in that long, impassioned passage, brilliantly uh, stated and uh, uh, fascinating in every particular detail and in every name named, you did get around to treating just uh, indirectly the friendship between Ayers and Dorn on the one hand and uh, a former student at the university, at the Harvard University Law School, namely, one Mm -hmm. Barack Obama, Mm -hmm. Uh, and you even speak of them as having access to the president. I hope they don't, but I do tend to worry about a president who first started his political career in the living room of uh, Dorn and Ayers when he ran uh, for the State Senate of Mm -hmm. Illinois.
1: Well, When I had to make the decision who to support for president, those certainly were factors, including the minister whose sermons he sat and listened to and allowed his children to listen to for years. Those were big, big negatives for me. But on balance, I liked his positions on uh, social issues, on the economy, and I voted for him um, uh, twice. And you know i don't get to pick perfect people to vote for for president or people with perfect backgrounds i get to decide who is the best or sometimes the least worst of the candidates, and then, then, then I vote. I'm a liberal Democrat who supports a woman's right to choose abortion, who supports gay rights, who's opposed to capital punishment, who's in favor of gun control, who believes in separation of church and state. So I can't find a home in the Republican Party. I'm thinking of writing a book called Why I Left the Left and Couldn't Join the Right. It's really why I left the hard left. I'm still a liberal Democrat, but I can't support the hard left at all in anything it does, but I can't join the right because of their point, their their views on all the points I've just mentioned.
0: Your immediate assignment today is to talk about and draw from your new book, Terror Tunnels, and I should have mm-hmm. got to it by now, and I will in a moment, but since we're on this particular line of conversation. Let me just pursue it just a bit. Uh, does your preference for Barack Obama extend to what is commonly called Obamacare? Does it extend to and does it endorse uh, the uh, uh, the uh, campaign that he and his attorney general seem now to be launched upon to somehow revive racist uh, suspicion and antagonism in this country? Does it indeed also Uh, support his uh, legalization of 4.5 million uh, illegals, Mm -hmm. just the beginning of what may be a vast legalization of 12 to 15 million, uh, most of them Hispanic. Uh, Mm -hmm. How liberal are you, really?
1: (laughs) I'm pretty liberal on some of those. um, You
0: go for all of that?
1: Uh, well let me start with obamacare i generally support uh... health care for for everybody in america i wish it had been rolled out better but on balance i think it will go down in history as a major accomplishment of this president i do uh... support also uh... a realistic approach to uh... how we deal with people who came to this country illegally, perhaps because some of my relatives came to this country illegally on the eve of the Holocaust. My grandfather uh, rescued 29 members of my family uh, in in the summer, basically, of 1939, just before um, uh, Nazi Germany invaded Czechoslovakia, where my family lived, and brought them here by saying he had jobs for them when he didn't. Um, They've turned out to be extremely accomplished people. One was the chairman of the Engineering Department of Columbia, one's a distinguished uh, rabbi in Los Angeles, another one is a very distinguished public relations person in Washington. So uh, I'm I- instinctively sympathetic to immigrants. Uh, you know, how, w- whether or not the president's doing it in exactly the right way, I think reasonable people could disagree about.
0: But aren't you uh, also distinctively uh, committed to uh, the, uh, the Constitution and the way in which course. it defines of presidential course. responsibility?
1: Of course, and that's why I'm not completely happy. Uh, I'm not happy, by the way, the way any presidents, Republicans and Democrats, have uh, asserted more power for the presidency than I think the frame is originally intended. Exactly, yes. And uh, I would like to see us go back to a time when the legislature, like it is in parliamentary systems, I just came back from England, were spoken in, in a committee room at the House of Lords yesterday. Um, and um, I prefer to see um, the, the role of Congress uh enhanced and expanded even though I don't love everything Congress does either but I think we need to preserve our system of checks and balances primarily on the issue of Iran I think the president is just wrong and categorically wrong when he says that the decision about whether or not we make a deal with Iran is a decision that the president gets to make. No, you don't. Uh, it's a treaty, basically, and it requires confirmation by two thirds of the Senate. Even if it's not a treaty, the foreign policy of the United States, the responsibility for conducting it, is divided among the president and the legislature. Uh, ambassadors have to be confirmed, uh, sanctions bills have to originate essentially in the House of Representatives. So if the president tries to make a bad deal with Iran, I hope. Congress will stop him from doing that. And I will certainly defend the power of Congress uh, in relation to the president to play a major role in deciding whether or not the deal with Iran, which would allow them to become a threshold nuclear state, is a good deal for America and a good deal for the world and a good deal for peace. Right now, I'm very suspicious of that.
0: Now I'm going to turn to what (coughs) is, after all, my responsibility. Let me do it this way. You've... um just made mention that you spoke only yesterday in a committee room of the House of Lords. Uh, you have, of course, in your time pleaded in R- Soviet uh, courts, and I suppose later in Russian courts. Right. Uh, you have uh, sat beside, so to speak, O.J. Simpson during his trial. You uh, got Klaus von Bülow released uh, after I actually
1: his... I saw Klaus von Bülow two days ago in London. Uh, and I trust he's doing Klaus well. And you paid him a visit, yeah. All right.
0: You... Um, uh, you've given a congressional testimony many many times of course mm-hmm. uh, you uh, uh, did not allow a young uh law student from Chicago, namely Barack Obama, to enter. Your, uh, <laughs> no, your restricted course on uh, judicial ethics, I gather.
1: No, that was a computer. They kept him out of my computer class, not kept him out. It was a but, computer. What happens is 500 students apply to, for 50 places, and the computer decides who gets in. All right.
0: But I come then to this. You, you've been uh, uh, very much around all sorts of places, doing all sorts of things. What were you doing haunting the tunnels uh, between Gaza and Israel?
1: It was a remarkable uh, How did you a, get there? To begin? Uh, I was in Israel uh, getting an honorary doctor from the Technion. A friend of mine, who was a former top gun in the U.S. Air Force and the Israeli Air Force, said that he had gotten permission for me to go into a tunnel that had just recently been discovered by the Israel Defense Forces. This was before the war, before we really uh, knew about the mm-hmm. extensiveness of the tunnels. And I quickly drove down to Gaza and went into the tunnel, which was almost 100 feet underground, concrete, uh... with little railroad tracks and the exit which had been discovered by a bedouin tracker working for the israel defense forces was just very close to a kindergarten with fifty seven israeli children and the only sole goal of that tunnel a death tunnel was to send death squads and kill and kidnap as many of those fifty seven children as possible and i had dinner with Benjamin Netanyahu just a few days later, and I told him about my experiences in the tunnel, and he was very reluctant to send troops into Gaza to destroy the tunnels, but the only way to destroy the tunnels is by sending troops into Gaza, and ultimately when Hamas used the tunnels again and killed several Israelis, uh, Netanyahu finally had to send uh, troops in. And so, because I was in those tunnels before the war, I immediately wrote a book uh, called terror tunnels the case for Israel's just war against Hamas and I did it as an ebook and I I finished it on a Thursday night. It was online on a Friday, and by Monday, it was an Amazon bestseller. Uh, it's amazing how quickly you can get eBooks out. Now it's a hardcover book as well, and you can get it in bookstores or online. I,
0: I hold it uh, in in my hand at the moment. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Terra uh by Alan Dershowitz is now published by Rosetta Books,
1: mm-hmm. it's the are, eBook publishing company, but they're also publishing yeah. hardcover now.
0: Yeah. Um, well, let's get to the case in some fuller detail. Uh, mm-hmm. If you were A bright uh, Gaza official and speaking to me on the radio from uh, Gaza City, what justification would you give of Gaza's recent history and what Hamas has done with its political control of that portion? of Palestinian territory.
1: It's awfully hard to make any kind of a case because they use... You've got a guy at the end
0: of this book who makes the case and he's the former dean of the law school at what, Wittes... Wittes Wittes,
1: Wittes, Wittes University? uh, In in South South Africa, yeah. I I, I urge everybody to read that debate because I kicked his rear end, I think. And this is... Doesn't he
0: think he kicked kicked your rear end?
1: I don't think so. I think he was embarrassed about uh, his performance in that debate. You can get it on YouTube. Well, what's the...
0: the What's the pro-Hamas argument, whether given by a lawyer from South Africa or by leading spokesman in Hamas itself. His argument
1: is that Hamas is still occupied territory, although there are no Israeli troops there and there are no Israeli settlers there. Israel controls the airspace, but when Israel left it in 2005, they really left. They left uh, hothouses, greenhouses. Uh, It could have become Singapore on the Mediterranean, and instead they used all the equipment and all the material they got from Europe to build tunnels and to build rockets, send 14,000 rockets into Israeli civilian targets and build close to 50 tunnels that had as their goal to kill as many Israelis as possible. Um, You know, and, and they use what i call the dead baby strategy They they put young children in harm's way they fire their rockets from u.n schools from hospitals from mosques they build their tunnels in mosques the entrances are in mosques you can see If you go online, you can see photographs of the entrances to tunnels and mosques, so that Israel is put to the choice. Either let these military targets continue to attack Israel or attack them. And if you attack them, you know you're going to kill some civilians. And Hamas wants Israel to kill Palestinian civilians. The amazing thing to me is that when this happens, Hamas gains popularity among the Palestinians, not only in Gaza but in the West Bank. And... uh, poll show just today a poll was released that showed that even palestinians in the west bank eighty percent support increased terrorism against israel in the jerusalem area so when you hear that the Palestinian people really want peace. You have to look at the data. You have to look at the polls. Israel has offered peace so many times, most recently in 2008, when the Palestinians were offered everything they wanted, and they turned it down, because ultimately what they want is the destruction of the nation-state of the Jewish people.
0: Well, let, let me pick up and offer you a, a thought, <clears throat> and to, to which I seek your response. Sure. That there has been anti-Israeli sentiment among the Palestinians from 1948 on, and indeed from the 1920s on, uh, we know. And obviously it has persisted uh, over the years. But we now have a general disordered stirring in the Middle Eastern Arab world, not in Israel Palestine, but in the rest of the Arab Middle East, uh, which uh, seems to be um, certainly regressive toward a fundamentalism in religion and a fundamentalism in, uh, in terrorization. Mm-hmm. And that, uh, is undoubtedly most recently fired up or renewed by the strange situation in Syria and by our withdrawal from Iraq and the rise once again both in Iraq, uh, and in Afghanistan of, uh, Taliban forces. Mm-hmm. Uh, and with all of that generally, uh, a, as I say, I'll use the word again, a regression toward not merely um, a more primitive or basic form of exclusivist uh, Islam, but a primitive and more basic form of anti Israelism or anti, can't say anti Semitism, the usual limit, of course, is that they are Semites also, mm-hmm. but anti Jewish uh, feeling which has taken uh, and does take a vigorous physical aggressive form. Therefore, the Palestinians, whether in the West Bank or down there in Gaza, are as part of a more general movement that is now sweeping the disordered Arab Middle East. Uh, the uh, people of the Palestinians uh, in their two separate sectors of the nascent Palestinian state are more overtly anti-Israeli and less cooperative now than they would have been 10 years
1: ago. Well, I think there's some truth to that. I think the Palestinians are a mixed group. If you go to Ramallah, you see a lot of secular Palestinians, a lot of modern Palestinians, high-tech. They drive uh, nice German cars. They uh, invest uh, and produce high-tech equipment. I think there are a lot of Palestinians who would like to move into the 21st century, and there are a lot who would like to move back to the 13th century, some to the 7th century. Um, And the interesting thing, of course, is that it's not only among um, uh, ISIS and the Taliban, but even the enemies of the ISIS and Taliban, who are, of course, Saudi Arabia and the Emirates, they're still living partly in the thirteenth century and partly in the twenty first century you go to you know uh... doha you go to Qatar, you go to uh... some of the emirates and they're they're, they're you know twenty first century lives and then you hear how they treat women and uh... how they treat democracy And it sounds like it's a throwback to the 13th century. So it's very complicated. It gives Israel some opportunities because, you know, the enemy of my enemy is not necessarily my friend, but at least you can make alliances with them. And I think Israel is making some alliances with uh, the Saudis and with the Emirates. Um, I think this is a good time for Israel to offer again a generous peace.
0: It is whispered in in some.
1: But of course, there's an election going on now, so that won't happen at least. It's whispered in some
0: quarters that Israel is maybe also secretly going to undertake or is undertaking taking some sort of temporary relationship with Iran, because Iran is equally troubled by the rise of ISIS or ISIL, and uh, so is Israel, and so they've got a common enemy, therefore the enemy of my enemy is my friend, even if that uh, enemy of the enemy is Iran
1: yeah you know, it's interesting though that uh Iran needs to be protected from isis isil ice much more than israel. Israel is not really vulnerable at this point uh and um although they Make lots of anti Israel statements, most of their focus is on uh, their Sunni enemies and all the Shias and so you know, the, the notion that the United States or Israel need Iran to fight ISIS is not really as true as the fact that Iran needs the United States to fight isis but we may see some strange coalitions but for me the most dangerous thing in the middle east now is the potential of iran becoming a uh, threshold nuclear nation which could quickly become a nuclear nation uh... it's a country that has been a suicide nation for years it sent uh, you know hundred fifty thousand of its young children to certain death when it was fighting against iraq um, it has um, uh, exported suicide bombing all over the world um, its leader once said that if they develop nuclear weapons and bomb Tel Aviv, they'll kill 3 million Jews, and Israel will retaliate and bomb Tehran and kill 20 million Muslims, and the trade-off would be worth it, he said. I remember that. That kind of suicide nation just can't be trusted. With anything close to nuclear weapon capacity. We know they're already developing intercontinental ballistic missiles that could reach Europe and perhaps the United States. And so, uh, you know, Israel has the Iron Dome. Uh, Europe doesn't have the Iron Dome. So all of Europe is vulnerable to a nuclear Iran. And I just hope the United States does not make a bad deal with uh, this suicide nation.
0: From what I know about um, nuclear technology, nuclear warfare technology, The Iron Dome is by no means as trustworthy as has been represented. Uh, That was a a limited assault against them, and they did, to be sure, knock down some rockets. But um, you can't possibly yet, in in contemporary technology, uh, develop uh, the sort of uh, total safe sky uh, protected from all possible incoming uh, nuclear-tipped rockets, for that matter, uh, as... uh, uh, is contemplated as was no, contemplated isn't. by Reagan when he first put the Star Wars uh, forward, or as is contemplated these days and is given in the propaganda pronouncements from the Israeli equivalent of the Department of Defense. They were lucky this time around, but a more full assault from other Arab nations could still undo Israel. It seems to me eternally Israel is living on on a precipice, and that hurts me deeply. I've got relatives there. I've been there. I love the fact that it exists, but I worry tremendously about whether a hundred years from now there will be an Israel. 50 years will be.
1: I think there will be. But Israel needs to have the support of the democratic world and the free world. And the fact that so many young people are turning against it. Uh, does pose great dangers, and and it's unclear why uh, the many academics and many young people would favor, uh, reg- you know, regimes that repress women, repress gays, or environmental disasters, uh, and uh, have no concept of democracy, repress Christians. Yeah. It's just uh, incomprehensible. Israel is surrounded by enemies and has to do what it can to defend itself and the challenge i throw out when i speak on college audiences is name one country in the world faced with threats comparable to those threats faced by israel that has ever had a better record of human rights a better record of protecting enemy civilians um higher compliance with the rule of law a uh, greater sensitivity to civil liberties and civil rights you can't name a country that has a better record you might be able to name some that are as good uh but none that are better and very few that are as good and yet when you ask college students some of them think it's Nazi Germany and it's you know the worst defender in the world and in, in my book terror tunnels i end with a prescription for how to make sure that these wars continue and the prescription is you know, have unilateral recognition of the Palestinians because that will drive them away from the bargaining table. Why do they have to bargain at? They're getting recognized anyway by uh, European countries and by the United Nations. And also condemn Israel every time it defends itself. That way, you'll guarantee that Hamas will have wars every two years in which they'll attack Israel. Israel will fight back and Israel will be condemned. So Hamas wins every one of these wars of public relations. They lose the war on the ground, many of their citizens get killed but they still win the war of public relations. Well, Alan, that's why they're going to continue to do it.
0: Let me bring up another touchy and difficult matter. <clears throat> uh, there is an elephant in the room, in the room being Israel. If it's not an elephant, it's at least uh, uh, um, a lion set loose. And what I have in mind there are Israelis, many of them Israeli intellectuals and Israeli journalists, and for that matter, even occasional Israeli legislators who are essentially um, also... Very critical of Israel's right to exist and surely very critical of Israel's right or Israel's role in relation to its other, uh, Near Eastern, Middle Eastern mm-hmm. neighbors. I right. speak of, uh, a large anti-Israel component within Israeli national life coming not from uh, the uh, Arab citizens of Israel, but coming from Jewish citizens of Israel.
1: Right. And, uh, you know, and I don't think you find
0: the equivalent of that in other challenged, uh, unhappy, uh, challenged or um, endangered nations.
1: Not not endangered nations. You do find it on college campuses today about the United States. Yeah. You find uh, virtually every person who's virulently anti-Israel is also virulently anti-American. People like Noam Chomsky and Norman Finkelstein and others hate America. Uh, Glenn Greenwald, uh, you know, the great hero of, of Snowden, hates America. Uh, calls it a terrorist country. Has never. Found a terrorist he didn't love. Uh, These are people who just hate America and they hate Israel because Israel is seen as a Western democracy. But
0: why do Israelis hate? Why do so many Israeli professors hate Israel?
1: Because there's a hard left group, and they don't hate Israel. They hate the current government of Israel, yeah. and they don't realize that. But they also they question attack,
0: the legitimacy of the state's existence.
1: Do. Some do. Some do. It's a small number. Um, but uh, their voice is very vocal, because when they come from Israel, and, you know, they fought in the army, and they're Israelis, they bring a lot of street cred to their uh, opposition, And they don't understand sometimes how what starts out as domestic opposition to particular policies gets used by the hard left around the world to try to demonize and delegitimate Israel. Look, Jews are very self-critical people. And, uh, you know, there were Jews who voted for Mussolini. Uh, I don't think any Jews voted for Hitler. They were okay.
0: one, one of two Jewish members of the Grand Fascist Council.
1: Right. Yeah. When so Mussolini find, first came to you know, power, you find, and, and you, of course there were Jews who were communists during Stalin's period when Stalin was killing Jews. So Trotsky, obviously, uh, although he himself was killed, but you find many others who uh, uh, were prepared to justify uh, things that were very dangerous to to Jews. And I think you must agree Jewish with nation. you
0: must agree with Leslie Fiedler, one of his famous epigrammatic comments: "Jews are just like everybody else, except more so."
1: Yeah, I like that, yeah. Um, uh, But the thing that's upsetting is that these folks, and there are just a few handfuls of them, become regarded as legitimate critics of israel because they're jewish and because they're israeli and their criticism is picked up widely around the world um... and you know when you eat even when you read just Haaretz, which is one of israel's most popular newspapers it's so critical of israeli policies uh... that uh... it begins to spill over to other newspapers around the world um and uh but what can you do it's a free country israel has free speech the only newspaper that anybody is trying to censor in israel is the left is trying to censor a right wing newspaper in israel called israel today but uh, the israeli government has never tried to censor left wing arab newspapers Muslim newspapers. Israel has complete freedom of speech and freedom of criticism. It has members of the parliament who are Arabs who don't believe in Israel's right to exist and they still have parliamentary immunity. Uh, imagine if there were people like that in Arab countries that uh, disputed the right of the Arab country or the Muslim country. They would never be allowed to serve in the legislature. In fact, the Arabs of Israel have more rights than Arabs anywhere else in the world. In the Arab world or in the Muslim world, and yet Israel is subjected to this uh, double standard of criticism.
0: You and I were thrilled as kids when you and Borough Park and I in Bensonhurst, when uh, shortly after World War II ended, Israel was established by an act mm-hmm. of the United Nations, essentially. Yeah, um, and uh, certainly would have predicted by the time uh, the century had ended. Uh, Uh, more than 50 years forward, or by uh, 50 years forward plus another 14, that uh, Israel would be established and at peace and flourishing with its uh, benefited Arab neighbors. Mm -hmm. Uh, Instead, uh, the question of its continued existence still brings a pang of anxiety uh, to our older (laughs) minds and our older hearts. When will this anxiety, if ever, end?
1: Well, you know, you'd have thought that after all these years, uh, the Arab world would accept the reality of uh, Israel. But the fact that Israel is in danger encourages many of the radical Arabs to say, let's not stop, let's not give up, let's not make peace, let's not end the refugee camps that people have been in now for 64 years. The other challenge I throw out to people is name any country in the history of the world that has contributed so much to the world in 64 years as Israel has. More life-saving medical technology. Israel has saved more Arabs and Muslim lives than any country in the world. Israel has more patents, more startups, more innovations, more Nobel Prizes uh, than any country its size, and yet uh, it's condemned rather than praised. The
0: digital culture, which has now transformed all of life uh, is uh, based in the United States and the second leading contributor in terms of invention and technology to the digital culture and its all in its continuing evolution towards the sky uh, is Israel itself, I believe.
1: Yeah, and you know, I challenged Stephen Hawking's so when Stephen Hawking's joined the BDS movement and said he would not go to Israel that he was part of the boycott. I challenged him to debate me uh, in in Britain on the morality of the DBS movement, the divestment, boycott, and sanction movement, but he could not accept the challenge because he would have to speak through a machine that no. was invented in Israel. Yes. And how could he, how could he be demanding uh, sanctions and divestment and boycotts of Israel when he would be debating through a machine that he uses that was invented in Israel? And the reason the boycott, divest, sanction movement will never work... In the world is that Israel's technology is indispensable, and so many of the things that we rely on for cell phones and computers were invented in Israel and developed in Israel that that boycott movement will never work, but that doesn't stop uh, people from uh, engaging in it and supporting it.
0: Many years ago, the New Yorker magazine did an article, it may have been by E.B. White or one of the standard people, uh, a kind of profile of Uh, the time-life-loose empire, uh, and particularly a focus on Time magazine, which had its own distinctive word-inverting or sentence-inverting verbal style in those days. And at the very end of this long piece uh, on Time magazine, the last sentence was, where it will all end knows God. (laughs) Uh, Tell me, where, where will it all end when it comes to the troubled... By now, absolutely fratricidal as well as uh, anti-Israeli homicidal uh, Middle East. Where will it all end? Does God know or do we know?
1: Well, (laughs) we better know because God hasn't been so so good to the Jewish people, certainly not over the last hundred or so years.
0: And he's not keeping his bargain.
1: Yeah, so I think we have to uh, uh, maintain uh, democracy um, uh, w- w- without counting on miracles. Um, I think Israel will survive. Um, it is a thriving democracy. It has the strongest military in the Middle East. Uh, it will continue to have the support of the American people. It's the United States' only only reliable ally in the Middle East. We used to think we can rely on Turkey.
0: You, cannot, you, do, you, you do not us. think it can be demographically swamped by no. uh, the high breeding millions and millions and millions of Arabs who surround it.
1: I don't think so. I think that uh, Israel will maintain its democracy. I hope it agrees to a two state solution. That will help Israel's survival because it will slow down the. Your demographic. friend
0: Netanyahu doesn't really favor a two state solution.
1: Well, he does. He does. Uh, he wants to see a two state solution, but one that doesn't in any way endanger Israel's security. And I think that's achievable. And, uh, you know, he's uh, put some offers on the table which are realistic. First, he has to get reelected. Uh, that will happen in March. Either he'll be elected or his opponents will be elected. And I think we'll see, I hope we'll see, uh, a generous peace offer emanating from whichever side gets elected. Nothing will happen between now and March. Because Is that the trouble brewing?
0: Isn't it the case that uh, your former student or your former. Uh the former student at Harvard Law, who is now the president of the United States, is planning and threatening sanctions against Israel unless it uh, stops its further building in supposedly occupied territory.
1: Well, first of all, it's total nonsense to say that Israel is building in areas that will become part of a Palestinian state. It's just not true. Israel is building in areas that... Are going to remain part of Israel. Everybody knows that. Uh, Abbas himself told me that. You right? mean the now suburbs? Of, you mean the
0: suburbs of Jerusalem?
1: Sure, Amalea, Dimim, Gilo, those areas. That's where the building is occurring. There's no building to speak of going on outside of the security boundary. So there's nonsense. No, no
0: new, the no new settlements. No new settlements on the West Bank at all.
1: No, no, not outside of the security area. And those that have been built are illegal, and they've been knocked down. Uh, so. Uh, the, the, the building of settlements, though I oppose them, and I've opposed them since 1973, yes, I know. Has, has not made it more difficult to have a two-state solution. Look, there were massive settlements in Gaza, and uh, Prime Minister Sharon ended those settlements and by military force removed nine thousand Israelis, made them dig up their cemeteries, their their parents and their grandparents' bodies and moved them out. And what was the result? The result was a Gaza Strip that has become a launching pad for rockets and tunnels against Israel. So we're not going to see unilateral withdrawal from the West Bank. That'll never again happen because of what uh, the Palestinians did in Gaza. Do you see,
0: to, to begin with, a preliminary answer to the Gaza problem. Should Israel go back in and condemn uh, that is control and, uh, and suppress uh, the Hamas government of Gaza?
1: No. As long as it's only a question of um, rockets with Iron Dome and with the tunnels now destroyed, I think that Israel should maintain the status quo, probably loosen up a little on some of the restrictions. Um, but Maintain security control over the Gaza. Israel is entitled to occupy the Gaza militarily. The Gaza is at war with Israel, and by international law, they are entitled. Nobody could dispute that. To have a military occupation, civilian settlements are different. Those are much more questionable under international law, but a military occupation is completely lawful. We occupied Germany and Japan until it was very, very clear that there was no resistance left, and uh, we occupied the South after the Civil War until there was no resistance left. Military occupations are completely legitimate under international law until there is real peace, and rockets are not real peace, and tunnels are not real peace, but I don't think there should be uh, troops sent in except on a sporadic basis to prevent the renewal of rockets and the destruction of tunnels. But a permanent military presence, I think, is probably a mistake at this you, point. You
0: cannot get real peace in the foreseeable future unless the Arab Middle Eastern world uh, manages to process and put aside the kind of recidivism toward uh, a simple, regressive, uh, pr- uh, primitivized, Islam and uh, the establishment of a new caliphate uh, claiming all arab territory as its own. Uh, what
1: Hamas is the is ISIS Hamas and ISIS are really essentially the same. Hamas exactly. is to Israel as ISIS is to the rest of the Middle East. But I do think Well they both flour-
0: is- they both flourish, don't they?
1: Right, but I think if Israel were to make a genuine peace offer and the, and the Palestinian Authority were to accept it, I think we'd then see a lot of pressure from the Arab world, particularly Qatar, which now supports Hamas, um, to um, moderate and perhaps uh, make some kind of, if not peace, a hudna, a temporary peace.
0: What would a genuine, attractive Israeli peace offer be like?
1: Well, it would be a, uh, um, geographic borders that, reflect essentially where the security barrier now is um, that would take about six point three percent of arab land on the west bank and exchange israel could give about five percent in the north as land swaps and also allow the palestinians to have a tunnel or a road between gaza and the west bank which is not part of the original uh... uh division of land between the united nations uh, by the united nations it could then uh, as omer did Propose that the, that the mountaintop in Jerusalem, which is disputed by you know, Jews and Muslims, be under some kind of a multinational, not UN, obviously, but multinational control, perhaps the United States, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Israel, uh, and, and who knows what other countries, would have to make decisions involving that, and uh, some home self Home rule for the Arabs of Jerusalem. So I think the elements are there. Omert offered it and uh, a, 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 a symbolic right of return for 5 or 10,000 Palestinians for family reunification, but not a massive right of return for, you know, 4 million. Um, but that's all doable. But if the European countries continue to recognize a Palestinian state without asking the Palestinians to do anything, um, then it's going to be much harder for the Palestinian leadership to accept even a generous peace offer from Israel.
0: Your mention of your visit, uh, I think only yesterday from the time we're recording this, to uh, London and the House of Lords uh, had to do with uh, Lords considering a bill recognizing the Palestinian state, which has already indeed passed the House of Commons. Is that right?
1: It passed- the House of Commons, but many of the parliamentarians stayed away. They didn't dissent, they didn't um, vote no, but they stayed away. So the number of people who actually voted for it was less than a majority of uh-huh. the House of Commons. Uh, and in Spain, they voted for it, but with conditions. Um, the bad guys, really, are the Swedes that voted uh, just unilaterally and unconditionally for a Palestinian state, the International Criminal Court which has now given observer status to the Palestinians, of course, the General Assembly of the United Nations. And uh, there are now proposals in Belgium and Holland and other countries in Europe to uh, recognize Palestine as a state without asking them to do anything. That is a prescription for disaster.
0: So listen, uh, we're coming close to the available end of the available time. Uh, you're Officially retired from the Harvard Law faculty this year for the first time. That's uh, right. First time. Does that mean
1: fifty years? I'm not teaching a semester. Does right?
0: that mean you're going to kind of dissolve into the distance? Uh, and <laughs> no no longer see you.
1: I'm I'm writing a lot of things, uh, and I'm traveling, and I'm litigating quite a few cases. What
0: are you litigating?
1: well a lot of international cases involving multiple countries uh one of the reasons i was in uh london was uh for several cases that i have i'm not free to discuss them but um i'm 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 very very busy i've argued several appeals i have some more to argue i was involved in a supreme court case this year and i have more some more of those but like every 76 year old jew I go to Miami Beach for the winter. I think there's a law in Massachusetts that you have to go to Miami Beach at least for a couple of months. So, we basically live down there for the winter, and it's very nice, and walk the beach and uh, spend a lot of time reading, but I don't have any uh, any class obligations, so it, gives, it frees me up to do what I want.
0: Uh, a last word, if I may, we're both old academics as mm-hmm. well as old Brooklyn Jews. Your institution, Harvard University, it's been through some strange changes in recent years. Not all of them really terribly attractive to somebody with some conservative uh, uh, attitudes looking on from a distance. What is, how goes, how fares Harvard?
1: I think it's doing very well. Um, for example, on the Israel thing, uh, many, many Harvard professors represent many points of view in Israel, and the debates on campus have been pretty, pretty nuanced, uh, which is not the case on most campuses around not only the country but around the world. I think Harvard's in pretty good shape. Uh, the law schools in pretty good shape. Uh, we have a lot of uh, conservatives, a lot of liberals. Uh, there's a lot of diversity of views. I don't think you hear much propagandizing in the classrooms at Harvard. So, um, you know, I left Harvard. I left it voluntarily after 50 years of teaching there, and I think I left it in pretty good shape. I think it's in better shape having left it than when I got there in 1964.
0: Which of your former students are you proudest of?
1: Oh, I can't. It's like saying, which of my children are you proudest of? I'm so proud of so many. I've had 10,000 students, and many of them are in positions of great power, an authority, uh, you know, Elena Kagan is a former student. She sits on the Supreme Court of the United States, and um, you know, I've had controversial former students, Elliot Spitzer. Uh, was my former research assistant uh, really? and, and uh, you know he was a terrific research assistant and a very good governor, but you know he he had to leave the governorship so i 've had so many good students and i, I can 't identify any one or even ten in in particular and i 've had conservatives and liberals as my research assistants and i don 't try to change my students' political views. If you come in as a liberal, I want you to come out as a smarter liberal. Come in as a conservative, a smarter conservative. You know, if you believe in God, I want you to come out as a smarter religious person. If you don't, as a smarter agnostic. So I'm not trying to change people's minds. I'm just trying to improve the quality of their uh, education and of their ability to think out, uh, think about things.
0: By the way, and let this, this will have to be our, my last query, um, and if you come out... Uh, Uh, A liberal, if you're a liberal, come out a better liberal. A conservative, come out a better conservative. And if you're a Jew and you've been through um, the maturing experiences that you've been through at the particular institutions and so on, uh, how does one come out a better Jew? What kind of Jew are you these days?
1: Well, I'm. Jew. I mean, I'm I, I I strongly identify with my culture and my heritage. I'm skeptical about everything, so I'm skeptical about theology. I'm skeptical about science. You know, my life is skepticism and asking questions. But you're not I you're not then identify. a truly
0: you're not then a truly religious person, are you?
1: Well, you know, it depends on how you define religious. I love going to the synagogue. Uh this Saturday night I'm going to hear a great cantor, Helfgott, uh in my synagogue uh in, in New York. I go to an Orthodox synagogue in New York, but I'm a mm-hmm. member of five different synagogues. I'm a member of Reform Synagogue, Conservative Synagogue, uh I'm a faculty advisor at Chabad or uh at Harvard. And, um, and, and, and an active member of our Orthodox Synagogue in New York. So I'm, I would call myself a post-denominational eclectic Jew.
0: Well, I guess you're a better Jew than I am, Congressman. Uh, 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 uh. That's wonderful. Well, we
1: each define it. You know, religion is for us to define for ourselves. No. There are no rule books. It
0: well, I find in my own uh, aging reality that... Uh, That identity becomes, it was always important in my life, but it becomes somehow central as one searches for a workable meaning of it. Um,
1: And that's what life is all about, searching for a meaning. Uh, We don't come with an instruction manual. Uh, There are no rules from on high. We have to make our own rules and do the best we can and uh, live by our experiences.
0: And you will forgive me, sir, by ending uh, with some mention of your new book, Alan Dershowitz's book, is titled, this is what, your 40th book, your 50th?
1: <laughs> no, only my 31st.
0: Mere 31st. It is titled Terror Tunnels The Case for Israel's Just War Against Hamas, and it's published by eBooks, and you can get it in hardcover as if it were a book from the day when um, they really made books and sold books, uh, titled Rosetta Books. Indeed, it's a rather handsomely done uh, printed volume.
1: Well, oh, thank you so much. I appreciate it. And it's an easy read. It's a relatively short book, and it's accessible, so I hope people will read it.
0: And I thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real oh, delight for me so to much. touch base again.
1: Always a again. pleasure. Always a pleasure to be on with you, Mel. Thank Bye. you
0: again.